Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Good morning. If you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Mark chapter 7. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 24 uh, down through uh, verse 37. Um, If you have your own Bible, you can follow along with me. There's also pew Bibles that are provided in front of you. It's also printed off and it's in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, you can do that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. Uh, My name is Sean Slade. I'm the pastor here and we're so glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could still be celebrating the countdown to the end of COVID. So we're at COVID-19, COVID-18, COVID-17, COVID-16. This week we're at COVID-15, so we're getting close to the end, I guess. Uh, You could also uh, be traveling uh, back from fall break. I know a lot of you went out of town for fall break. You could be traveling. Or you could be walking around Knoxville looking for your mustache that fell off this week, uh, just like a lot of your hair. Um, But uh, the joke is I had a mustache last week, but I don't have a mustache If you have to explain it, I guess it's not funny. But um, anyway, uh, you're here with us, not for the jokes. Uh, I want to thank you for coming. And the reality is that there really is nothing better you could do with your time uh, than worship Jesus. Uh, There's nothing better you could do with your time than consider his claims upon your life or to reflect upon the beauty of his kingdom. So I'm really glad you're with us this morning. And I do want to welcome you to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, and he's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together uh, to worship him so that we might learn to rest in that love that God has for us. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. And so we get together and we get on paddle boats with one another. We read the Bible together. We pray together, all in order to try to remind one another of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love, as we remind each other of his love, we then delight to gather together in service so that together uh, we might reflect the love of God, right, to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire world, right? That's who we are, a people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, we are in a series on the kingdom of God as seen through the lens of the gospel of Mark. And so this morning, what I want us to think about is this kingdom of kindness, right? God's kingdom of kindness. So with that in mind, let's look together. Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 24 down through verse 37. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. 
But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond all measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, that your mercy never fails, uh, that your kindness endures forever. And uh, we are thankful that you're not hidden, nor are you silent, but you love to speak to us and you love to reveal your heart to us. And so now in these few moments, would you show us lovely things of you? Would you open our ears, open our hearts, open our mouths, that we may proclaim the beauties of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd assume that many of you know that I have three children. Uh, One is 21, one is 18, one is 15. And one of the things that I would assume that would be pretty, uh, you know, incredibly frustrating for all of them is that um, it is very easy for me uh, to continue thinking of them and treating them as if they are still 12, right? And so uh, my daughter comes home from college and I think, oh, remember when we used to read Chamber of Secrets? We had to snuggle up by the fire, read the Chamber of Secrets together. We could paint each other's nails. It'll be a great weekend for us together, right? Or I think about my son who played the piano and I didn't know he did that. Uh, and because when he was 12, he didn't. And I, th- I just think about this little boy, you know, wearing a Barcelona jersey or something like that. Um, and I don't mean to do it, right? But it is just easy for me uh, to put my children in a box and to sort of keep them there. Uh, but here's the deal. Uh, whenever we put our children in a box, they don't stay there. And they don't stay there uh, because they're real live human beings, And they're real live human beings with their own hopes and with their own dreams, with their own hurts and with their own sorrows. They are real live human beings with their own lives and with their own futures. And that can be really scary for a parent uh, because the older they get, uh, the less control I have over them. And uh, the older they get, um, the less I actually even understand them. And unless I remain curious about my children, and unless my children are willing to reveal themselves to me, uh, 
I will just have the image of a 12-year-old, a little child, and I will lose uh, those that are right in front of me. And I think that this is often the way we engage with God. It's not that God changes over time. I mean, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But the reality is we are not the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And sometimes what we need is for God to engage us in different ways. Just like our children at times need us to relate to them in different ways. Sometimes um, uh, our children need us to make dinner for them. And sometimes our children need us to let them pay for dinner. Sometimes our children need words of wisdom, and sometimes they need the warm embrace of welcome. Um, But God relates to us uh, in different ways, not because he's different. He relates to us in light of what we need in the moment. And that's the way God treats his children. He gives us what we need. Sometimes he's incredibly gentle with us. And sometimes he seems a little rough. Uh, Sometimes God is uh, seemingly very demanding, and at other times, he seems incredibly patient. But whatever God does in our lives, however it is he relates to us, uh, he always relates to us in a way that is intended to reveal his kindness. And he always relates to us in a way that is intended to reveal that he does all things well. And that's the point of the passage. The culmination of this passage is found there at the end in verse 37, when all the crowds begin to proclaim, he has done all things well. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning, that he does all things well, right? He does all things well. Would you say that with me? He does all things well. Now, as we look at these two interactions with Jesus and the woman and with Jesus and the man, I think it's helpful for us to remember the context. You've got to remember that Jesus has been in discussion and debate with the Pharisees. And what they've been talking about are the cleanliness laws. And this is a big deal because to the Jews, uh, the most unclean thing that they could ever imagine uh, in the world was a Gentile. And so they would often call Gentiles dogs because dogs were unclean, and so they would call us Gentile dogs. Now, this is important for us to kind of focus on for a few moments because it is important for us to remember that almost all of us in this room are actually Gentiles. And so virtually every one of us would have been seen by the Jews of the day as unclean just by virtue of our very existence. By virtue of our very existence, we were unclean and therefore excluded from fellowship with God and excluded from fellowship with God's people. And so what's really fascinating in this passage is that immediately after they're having this debate about what is clean and what is unclean, Jesus and his disciples, verse 24, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon and he entered a house. Now, this is a big deal because I'm sure all of you uh, study the Bible maps in the back of your Bible. Uh, And so uh, what's happening here is to enter into Tyre and Sidon means that they have crossed over the northern boundary of Israel. And what that means is that they have left 
Israel, and they have entered into unclean Gentile territory. And as they enter into the Gentile nation, into the Gentile world, they're not only entering into the Gentile world, I want you to notice that they enjoy the hospitality of an unclean Gentile home. And after they put their bags away, uh, verse 25, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So I want you to think about this. So by virtually every cultural uh, standard of the day, uh, this woman had no right to draw near and to approach a Jewish holy man. Uh, This woman should not have drawn near to him because, one, she was a Gentile, she was unclean. Two, she was a woman. And three, her daughter had an unclean spirit, right? She had been participating. There's this sort of uncleanliness that's all a part of her. But the reality of her life is not only that she's unclean, the reality of her life is that her whole life is falling apart through the suffering of her daughter, And so when she hears that Jesus has come to town, she gave up on all cultural decorum. She gave up on all those holiness codes and what the Jews would have expected. And she ran to Jesus and she fell at his feet in verse 26, begged him to cast the demon out of her. I think this is a really lovely image because here we have this mother who is agonizing over the suffering of her daughter. And so she begs Jesus. In the Greek, it's this ongoing, continual pleading as if she's saying, please, Jesus, please, Jesus, please, Jesus, please, Jesus, please, Jesus, heal my daughter. Please heal my daughter. Please heal my daughter. I'm sure that many of you know what that's like. Maybe it's not about your daughter, but maybe you just plead and plead and plead and plead to Jesus for him to do things. And she's pleading so much that uh, in Matthew's account of this story, the disciples actually encourage Jesus to send the woman away. Uh, But a mother who is in need is a mother who will never leave. And so she continues to plead. And we're told that her daughter has this demon. And I would assume uh, that many of you, as you read the Bible at this point, you begin to think, oh, how primitive, right? The Bible remains behind the times. And I, I know that uh, we live in a post-enlightenment, scientific, secular culture. And so many of us have come to believe, uh, right, or to disbelieve, I guess, uh, in the devil and his demons and to think they don't exist. But maybe the movie, The Usual Suspects, was right And maybe the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Maybe the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Now, I'll just say this up front. I don't fully understand the spiritual world, and I don't even know if I really want to. It's somewhat frightening at times for all of us, I assume. But what I do know is that as you read the Bible, uh, Jesus says and acknowledges that the world exists. And what I do know is throughout the Bible, the Father through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit is seeking to destroy the works of the evil one. And what I know culturally is that the more uh, we engage in globalization and the more the secular West engages cultures around the world, the more the secular West is being invited to reconsider our disbelief 
in the supernatural, personal kind of uh, evil. And what I want to just kind of present to you is maybe this idea that maybe it's not the Bible that is primitive and behind the times. Maybe what we'll begin to see is that we're the primitive ones in the secular West, and maybe we're the ones that are actually behind the time. But I digress. Uh, so what we see, let's go back to the story. We, we've got this mother, and she's begging for Jesus uh, to heal her daughter. And, and Jesus seems to say something incredibly harsh to her. We see it in verse 27. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And I think this is important because if you read the Bible, if you know Jesus, you're thinking, this isn't normally the way I would expect Jesus to respond to this woman, and it's probably not the way any of us want him to respond to her. I mean, when I first read this, I'm thinking, Jesus, what you need to do is you need to like take her face in your hand, you know, you need to look her in the eyes, and you need to say, sweet woman, I'm so sorry for your pain. Let me help you. Let me help your daughter. Uh, that's what I wish the story, how it went, but that's not what it does. Jesus calls her a dog. And one of the reasons that Jesus calls her a dog is he's alluding to the reality that the Jews called the Gentiles dogs. And they called the Gentiles dogs because the Gentiles were unclean. Now, if you've ever read commentators on this passage, you'll know that Almost all of them want to point out the fact that when Jesus calls her a dog, he doesn't call her the scavenger, feral, kind of stray dog, right? But he calls her the household dog, right? The, like, the pet. And so some people want to translate this, not dog, but puppy. Either way, it's still a dog. <laughs> and either way, it seems a little bit uh, insulting. And what he's uh, saying to this woman is, uh, you're unclean. What he's saying to the woman is, uh, you're not a child who belongs at the table. You're unfit. And this is kind of puzzling to us, right? Because Jesus had just been interacting with the Pharisees and he had been teaching us that it's not the externals that make us unclean, right? It's out of the overflow of our hearts. And so as you read this passage, it seems really puzzling, and I think it's meant to be puzzling because what seems to be happening is that Jesus is inviting this woman into a parable. He's trying to tell a story. He's trying to use this metaphor. He's trying to invite her in to see the way things actually are. And what he's saying is this. You've got to remember a household table. And at a household table at the time, the father uh, would feed the children first. And after the children and the family are fed, then the pets would get fed. And Jesus is saying, I have come on behalf of the Father to feed the family. I have come on behalf of the Father to feed the children. Uh, and after they are fed, then the world will be fed. What he's saying is, I'm the fulfillment of everything that the children of God, the Israelites, have been longing for. I'm the fulfillment of all of the Father's promises. I'm the fulfillment of the covenants. I'm the fulfillment of the prophets, of the priests, of the kings. I'm the fulfillment of the sacrifices and of the temple. I am everything that the family of God has been longing for, and I have come so that they might know. I have come so that they might be fed. I have come so that they might be filled 
and then the nations will come and be fed. Now, what's amazing in this little sort of parable is that Jesus is collapsing uh, the story of God's work in the world. You've got to remember that, that God had called Abraham to himself right? And he had made Abraham his child. He'd revealed himself to him. And he said to Abraham, uh, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. And so the way that the story of the Bible goes is, is that God draws his children to himself. He calls them to himself. He, he blesses his children. He feeds his children so that in turn, through his children, the world would be blessed. And so what Jesus is saying is, I must feed my people so that they might be the blessing that they were always intended to be. And this is really important at the time because the Israelites had lost that vision. At, at the time, the Israelites uh, wanted to be fed in order to be fed. At the time, they, they wanted to be blessed so that they could be blessed. They wanted to be clean so that they would be clean. They wanted to be children so that they could be children. And though it's important to be children of God, though it's important to be blessed by God, though it's important right, to be fed by God, uh, that was never the end. The end was that they would be blessed so that they might become a blessing. God's family was always intended uh, to be blessed in order to bless. And what's amazing in this story is that the woman gets it. Uh, the woman understands the parable. She understands what Jesus is saying. And we see that because she answers with the language of the parable. And you see it in verse 27. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. I think this is beautiful because what she's saying is, uh, Jesus, you're right, I agree with you. Like, I am unfit. I, I, I get it, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm not an Israelite, I'm a Gentile. I get it, I understand, I'm unclean. I, I get it, I understand, I don't deserve a place at the table. I get it, I understand. Uh, but then she does this amazing thing. She says, but you know what? I don't deserve any of it, but here's what's true. Even the dogs eat from the Father's table. Even those dogs, they eat from the Father's table. And so the dogs might not eat first, they might not eat as much, but they still eat. And so what she's saying is, there's room enough for me at the table. What she's saying is, there's enough on the table for me. And I love this. She's coming to Jesus and she's saying, Jesus, I get it. I don't deserve any of it. But there's enough mercy in God for me. And Jesus says to her, verse 29, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. He's praising her for his faith, for her faith. He's saying, you're right. You get it. Therefore, go in peace because there is enough mercy in God for you. There is enough mercy in God for me. And there's enough mercy in God for you. And this is really, you know, this parable is really just sort of summarizing the gospel. Because think about it. Like, she could have taken offense at the language. But she doesn't take offense 
what Jesus says. He doesn't take offense that she's called a dog or unclean or unfit for the table. Instead, what she says is, you're right. I am unclean. You're right, I don't belong. Uh, You're right, I am a sinner. You're right, I don't deserve anything from her hand. But the Father is merciful. And I need his mercy. And so I come to you. And I think that this is really uh, huge because so many of us, we come to Jesus and we're so mad at God because we think he owes us something. We think God owes us for being good. We think God owes us for being the right kinds of people. We think God owes us because we got up and came here this morning. We think he owes us. Uh, But what she's saying is that I don't deserve any of this. I am unfit for the mercy of God, but there is enough mercy for me. I think think some of us reject the mercy of God in our pride and our arrogance. And we say, he owes us. I've done enough. I'm clean. I don't need it. I don't need anyone's charity. I'll make my way on my own. Tim Keller takes this a little bit further, and he says, it challenges not only our pride, but it also challenges our self-loathing. Because how, is it, how often is it true that we would say things like, God could never love me. I mean, I'm, I'm, so, I'm such a sinner. I'm so messed up. There's no way that God could ever love me. And when we say those things, we make much of our sin, which is right, uh, but we make very little of our Savior. And so Tim Keller uh, quotes a letter by John Newton that John Newton wrote to one of his friends, and he wrote this. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low of an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer. And that is wrong. And here's the point in this, in this parable. We often reject Jesus by saying, I don't need him. Uh, but we also often reject Jesus by saying, I'm not good enough for him. But the point of this parable is that, that, that Christians don't think too highly of themselves, nor do we think too lowly of ourselves. What we do is we rejoice in the overflowing mercy and kindness of the Father. We rejoice in the overflowing mercy and kindness of the Father. And so here's the point. Like, Jesus does all things well. Like, he does all things well. Would you say that with me? He does all things well. So after this interaction, uh, Jesus and the disciples, uh, they leave uh, Tyre and Sidon, and they go over to the Decapolis. And we've been to the Decapolis before. You probably remember back in Mark chapter 5, and the demoniac and the legion of demons that had been cast out there. And when they come back to the Decapolis, it seems as if uh, the legion had been telling the whole city about him. Because in Matthew, as soon as they come into town, like everybody comes to greet Jesus. But here in Mark, they pull out one of the people and uh, they focus on him. And this, this one who comes to Jesus, it says, is deaf and he has a speech impediment. 
And it seems as if Jesus is sort of tired of all the crowds. I mean, he's, he and his disciples have been looking for rest for the last few chapters. They haven't found it. Everywhere they go, people are coming to them. And so he draws away and he takes this man who is ill with him, seeming to get away from the crowds, but also seeming to not make a spectacle of this man. And he does these weird things. Like he touches his ears. He touches his tongue. He, he says this strange word of Fafatha, right? And it seems as if like it would be easy to think, okay, Jesus is just this one worker, right? And he's been in the dungeon with Snape learning the dark arts, and this is the incantation to make people, you know, hear and speak again. Uh, But I do think it's important for us to realize that Jesus didn't have to do any of this. We just saw that Jesus cast out a demon uh, out of a little girl without even being in her presence. So we've got to ask the question, why is it that Jesus is doing this? And I think what we see is that Jesus is doing all things well. Jesus is being kind. This is an act of compassion by Jesus because what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to communicate to this man what is about to happen. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, he's using sign language in order to communicate God's mercy. Now, you got to re- realize this is an, um, an amazing act of kindness, not only in the healing, but in the interaction Because here's a man who can't hear. Uh, Here's a man who can't talk. Uh, He's probably been mocked. He's probably spent most of his life sort of confused about what's going on all around him. And so Jesus sets out not only to heal him, but to draw near and to communicate with him. And so he pulls him away from the crowds as if to say, hey, it's going to be okay. Here's what's happening. He puts his fingers in his ears as if to say, we're going to open these up. You're going to hear like he, he grabs his tongue, grabs his tongue as if to say, we're going to loosen this and you're going to begin to speak and to sing. He looks up into heaven and wh- why is he looking to heaven? Because what he's saying is God is going to heal you. This isn't magic. This isn't sorcery. This is a gift from God. And what I want you to see in this is that this is a very compassionate, gentle interaction It's seemingly very different from the one with the woman. But what is true is that in both of these interactions, Jesus is meeting the particular people in the particular ways that they need to be met. And he's revealing something about the ways of God and how God does all things well. And what's amazing in this passage is this little phrase in verse 34, he sighed. Like, Jesus sighed. When I first read that, I thought, man, is Jesus just bored by all this? Like, is Jesus sort of bothered by our burdens? Uh, But instead, what you begin to realize is that Jesus is burdened by our burdens. Right? What you begin to see is that Jesus is sighing because he's groaning under the weight of the sorrows of our lives. And I think that this is amazing because it reveals the heart of our God. That our God is a God who, uh, whose heart is so tied to our hearts that he rejoices when we rejoice, right? He weeps when we weep, and he sighs when we sigh. That's what our God is like. And he sighs not only because he knows we sigh, uh, but he sighs because he knows that in order to free us, 
And in order to restore us, in order to loosen our tongues so that we might sing of the mercy of God, in order to do that, Jesus groans because he knows that he's going to have to groan on the cross. He's going to have to go to the cross and he's going to have to bear our burdens. He's going to have to bear our sins. He's going to have to bear our sickness, our sorrow, our pain, and our death. He's going to have to go there on behalf of his brothers and sisters so that we might hear of God's mercy and kindness and so that we might begin to sing of the Father's mercy and kindness. What I want you to see is that uh, Jesus does all things well. Like, he does all things well. Would you say that with me? He does all things well. And one of the things that's really fascinating in this passage is that the man uh, is deaf and has a speech impediment. And, and the word that is used for deaf and speech impediment here in Mark is only used one other time. And it's used in uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's used in Isaiah 35. And in Isaiah 35, God tells us that the Messiah is going to come. And when the, when the Messiah comes, he is going to come with vengeance. And he's going to come with the recompense of God. And he will come to save you. And when he comes with recompense and vengeance and comes with salvation, do you know what Isaiah 35 says will happen? I'm sure you can guess. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And so when Jesus uh, opens this man's ears, and when Jesus loosens this man's tongue, uh, this is an enacted statement by Jesus to the world that God has come for his people in Christ. And we see that as he opens the ears and loosens the tongues. We see it in the sign as he groans under our burdens and under the weight of our sins so that we might be a people who begin to sing of his mercy and of his salvation. And I want you to remember that what Isaiah had said. Isaiah had said that he would come with vengeance and recompense and come to save. And we often would think of the swords and the wrath and the anger and all that. And so where is that in this interaction? Well, the recompense, right, and the vengeance is seen in the sigh. And that's the point of the cross, that on the cross, Jesus was bearing the recompense. Jesus was bearing the judgment so that we might be children at his table and so that we might learn to sing of the Father's kindness. Hey, what I want you to see, what I hope you see is that God does all things well. And that's the point of this table. Right? The point of this table is that Jesus does everything well. He sighs with us. He groans with us. And how do you see that here at this table? Well, do you see it in the bread? Do you see it in the wine? What's the point of the bread? What's the point of the wine? The point of the bread is that Jesus gave his body for us and it was broken for us. He groaned under the weight of our sin for us. Where do you see it in the blood? His blood was poured out for us, right? Jesus groaned, right, he, uh, as he bore our sorrows and as he uh, gave himself and, be and died and in his death he becomes silent 
so that we might be those who hear the Father's mercy and begin to sing of his grace. Also, as we come to the table, we're reminded of the Syrophoenician woman because this table tells us some things that we don't like to hear. Uh, The table tells us uh, that we are unfit. The table tells us we are unclean. The table tells us we are sinners. Uh, We're not the right race. We're not the right kinds of people. We are people with unclean lips. We're people with unclean hearts. We're people with unclean lives. And we live among people with unclean lips and hearts and lives. Uh, But what does the table tell you? It tells you the same thing it told the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, that there's enough mercy in God for us. There's enough mercy in God for you. And so Jesus is inviting you to come to his table, to feast upon him and to sing that he does all things well. Like he does all things well. Would you say that one last time with me? He does all things well. And therefore, I want to invite you to rise.